Podcast One production. The Health Hacker with Adam McDougall. Dr. James Mukey is an Australian of the year. And he might not be the kind of person you think we'd usually have on The Health Hacker. He's not some big buff personal trainer. He's not an elite athlete. He is, though, a man doing amazing things around sugar. And, of course, he would be because he got Australian of the year. But it didn't start off on a quest to find out about sugar. It started off because of his medical research. It's a fascinating story of where he started and where he ended up. And his tips and advice on how we can alter our view of sugar and how sugar plays an impact on our life absolutely blew Adam and I away. And this is that chat with Adam and the doc. Now, remember, if you want us to hack into someone in particular, email us, healthhackeratthemanshake.com.au. Jump onto Adam's Manshake socials or on the website, themanshake.com.au. And let us know who you want us to hack into and we'll get them on the podcast, just like this suggestion, which was a great one. So here's that chat with Adam and Dr. Mukey. Doctor, can you uh, explain to us your passion for for type 2 diabetes and uh, obviously the war against sugar, how this stemmed for yourself? Well, it really began uh, a couple of years ago. I, I mean, I'm an ophthalmologist and I've been uh, dealing with the consequences of diabetes and fix on the eyes for 30 years now. And actually for 30 years, I've been seeing uh, this rise in diabetes and the complications that uh, we see in the eyes. So every year, more and more patients are losing vision, even going blind. And in 2018, I met a man who had an incredible story. He went to bed one evening at the age of 50 and woke up the next morning blind in both eyes. And uh, he's still blind to this day. He's also had nine amputations of his left leg and has had two heart attacks as well. So the two most feared complications of diabetes a loss of vision, which is first, and amputation, which is second. And he's really had the full house, the poor thing. And uh, so his story was was very, very powerful. And I actually met him when I was doing a documentary about the experience of blindness, what it means to be blind. And, and uh, he was one of 10, but his story was just so extraordinarily powerful that it made me really think very seriously about this. Uh, me as an ophthalmologist, I was really just seeing the end stage complications of a disease. And if we look at the fact that close to 90% of patients with diabetes have type 2 diabetes, which is a largely preventable dietary disease. So I was seeing the end stages of a disease, which was, in essence, a a preventable situation. Uh, And really, to be honest, I hadn't given a huge amount of thought beyond just dealing with the the consequences. I wasn't aware really of the origins behind uh, the development of type 2 diabetes and the growth uh, globally. And so when I received the South Australian of the Year Award, I was talking about the fact that diabetes is the leading cause of blindness amongst working age adults in this country and that uh, why is that? Because more than half of the 1.7 million people with diabetes, significantly more than half, are not having their regular uh, regular all-important sight-saving eye checks. And that's why it's become such a serious blinding problem in our society. But leading up to the Australia Day weekend, I thought, really, don't I have a more uh, a bigger responsibility to raise awareness of the uh, root cause of this disease, which is our, our diet, and in particular our diet, which is high in uh, sugar and high in refined carbohydrates and ultra-processed foods. Yeah, it's amazing. I don't think people have been able to put two and two together. 
the effects that something like eating the wrong foods and then as a result uh, developing type 2 diabetes, which you said is largely a lifestyle-based disease, um, the consequences it can have on things like vision, for example. Most people who are probably drinking a Slurpee as we speak now or, or having a can of Coke probably don't realise the risk they're subjecting themselves to. So going back a step, um, for most people, they probably don't understand actually what causes type 2 diabetes and insulin insensitivity is a, a big driver of that. Can you explain how somebody would develop type 2 diabetes? Sure. Often people consider type 2 diabetes a disease of people who are overweight and obese. And uh, obesity is the biggest risk factor for type 2 diabetes, um, but it's only a marker for poor metabolic health. What's really interesting is that in the United States, there are actually more thin metabolically unhealthy people than there are obese metabolically unhealthy people. So in essence, uh, obesity of itself is not the, the underlying problem here. And interestingly, also type 2 diabetes is rising equally in thin and obese people. So as I say, obesity is not the problem. It's just a marker of the problem. It's not even the amount of calories that we're consuming, but it's the type of calories. And in particular, it's the sugar. And sugar is actually a toxin and it's highly addictive. It's the only addictive substance that we actually give infants, you know, extraordinarily. Uh, and yet people are really unaware. I was unaware of how addictive uh, sugar is and I was unaware of how toxic sugar is. And the particular element that's so toxic is the fructose. So if we look at sucrose, which is the most common sugar uh, additive, it's what we stir in our tea and coffee. It's made up of 50% fructose and 50% glucose. And, and in particular, the fructose element is really dangerous because as soon as it's absorbed into the bloodstream, 100% uh, is taken up by the liver. So it doesn't actually trigger the release of insulin as glucose does. And so, a significant proportion of that fructose is converted immediately into fat by the liver. Some of it is exported away as triglyceride, which is harmful. I think about 30% or close to a third is actually converted directly to, uh, to fat within the liver. And so with excessive fructose intake, uh, what can happen is that the liver actually takes on uh, fat, it stores the fat, and we develop what's called a fatty liver, and fatty liver is really central to this whole type 2 diabetes process. So uh, fructose is very um, effective. In fact, with excessive fructose intake, we can develop a fatty liver within or less than two months. Wow. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's really dangerous and something we, we absolutely need to be cautious about. And it's something that uh, a lot of people are probably going to think straight away when they hear the word fructose, they're going to think fruit but it's usually uh, as a result of ingesting these man-made um, beverages such as soft drinks and, and fruit juices and whatnot that contain the fructose that's dangerous for your liver. What's interesting about that, Adam, is that uh, a glass of orange juice receives a healthy rating on our health star rating system. It receives five <laughs> stars. And yet a glass of orange juice has nearly as much sugar as a, a glass of cola, for example. So what happens, uh, you know, I heard an interesting saying the other day, when nature uh, creates a toxin, which fructose is, yep. it packages the toxin up with the antidote, which is the fibre. So when you have, let's say, an apple or an orange, uh, it comes with fibre, which actually has positive effects in terms of reducing the absorption of the fructose, um, uh, there's a number of metabolic uh, actions that, that the fibre has. So when you uh, have an orange or an apple, you're not having the same hit, the same fructose hit, the same sugar hit that you are when you're having the juice. So, for example, if you make a glass of orange juice, you might squeeze four or five oranges and you're getting a 
pretty big sugar hit directly. You're getting some vitamins and minerals, of course, as well. So it's obviously slightly healthier than uh, than, than a soft drink cola, a sugar sweetened beverage, but. Uh, uh, it is still a significant sugar hit, whereas you could not eat four or five oranges. You could not eat four or five apples in one sitting, the amount of fruit that you would need to create the juice. So uh, you're much better off just having an orange or two or an apple or two rather than having the juice of that fruit. So just, just going back a couple of steps, when glucose is ingested, so we talked about fructose, when glucose is ingested, this is taken up. Um, by every cell of the body, whether it's either stored or used as an energy source. So when we do have excessive and prolonged glucose intake, um, the insulin level rises to help move more of that glucose into the cells. But it gets to a point where the cells can not take any more glucose in, and that's when we become what's called insulin resistant. So the insulin level then rises to help try and move more sugar into the cell. Uh, but uh, it gets to a point where the cells cannot take any more in. So there's an overflow of glucose back into the bloodstream, and that is then taken up by the liver. It's initially converted into fat. Uh, sorry, initially converted into glycogen uh, within the liver. And the glycogen stores are actually limited. And so what then happens is the glucose is converted into fat by a process called de novo lipogenesis. And that fat is actually exported away from the liver and stored in healthy fat cells throughout the body. So it's actually a protective mechanism. But when we have excessive uh, sugar intake, the production of fat outstrips its ability to be exported. And that's when the liver then starts taking on the fat. So this is uh, really how the process happens. And in the insulin resistance giving rise to high insulin level in the blood, this can actually be detected prior to the high blood sugar level of prediabetes or type 2 diabetes. So actually, one of the things that can be done if you're concerned about this is go along to uh, see your GP and, and ask for an insulin level to be uh, taken. Certainly blood sugar level, uh, fasting blood sugar level, HbA1c are, are the tests that can be done. And of course, uh, having an ultrasound of the liver if you're particularly concerned. And certainly if you do have, uh, if you are uh, insulin resistant, or if you do have pre-diabetes, and it's probably worth considering uh, an ultrasound of the liver just to uh, uh, just to reinforce the need to do something about what is uh, a real danger to your health. Can you expand on your five A's about sugar? I love this uh, theory that you've come up with, and why sugar is so addictive, and the why it's a toxic uh, substance. Sure. So early in the year, I was really. Well, leading up to the Australia Day weekend, I wasn't expecting to win the award, but I thought I better be prepared uh, and better do some reading just in case I happened to get it. I, I didn't think they were going to give it to another Adelaide doctor uh, two years in a row. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I did, I did give it a lot of thought. And what I thought is that, well, you know, if we're calling type 2 diabetes a, a dietary disease, which essentially it is, uh, then ultimately this should be a dietary cure and it should be as simple as giving up the, the sugar and the refined carbohydrates. Now I talk about refined carbohydrates as well, not just glucose and uh, fructose. So uh, refined carbohydrates. So these are products such as white flour, white rice, white potatoes and the foods made from them. So they're all pretty much pure starch and starch is simply a long chain of glucose, which is broken down into glucose when it reaches the gut. So when you're ingesting refined carbohydrates, you're pretty much ingesting pure sugar. So it's really important to realise that as well. And when you are insulin resistant, uh, the glucose in refined carbohydrates can actually be converted 
by what's called the polyol pathway into fructose. You have, so that's a, another danger as well when you are insulin resistant, when you're having lots of refined carbohydrates, you need to be really careful about uh, what you're consuming, the pasture, the white breads, all of those sorts of things that you're consuming. Uh, and the other thing is the, the highly processed food, which has significant amount of sugar and carbs, uh, but particularly sugar added to it. So something like 75% of our uh, food and drinks have added sugar. So it should be as simple as just saying, okay, well, I'm going to be careful. I'm not going to have the sugary drinks. I'm going to give up uh, the added sugar in my diet and uh, watch, out my, watch out the amount of refined carbohydrates I'm consuming. However, there are these other factors that would make it really difficult to achieve that. And that's where I came up with the concept of the five A's of sugar toxicity. So the first A is addiction. So sugar is highly addictive. It's been shown to be as addictive as nicotine. So its consumption activates the reward center in our brains, leading to the release of neurotransmitters such as dopamine. And so those are what makes us feel good when we have sugar, what makes us want to do it again, and what gives us those cravings. And like drugs, the more you consume, the more you need to give you that feel good hit. So it becomes a vicious cycle that's really hard to break. Second A is alleviation. Uh, we often use sugar to alleviate stress and to make us feel better when we're down. When we're stressed, uh, the brain triggers the release of the stress hormone cortisol. And uh, the brain needs to balance that up with feel good chemicals such as dopamine and endorphins, et cetera, serotonin. And, and so sugar does a really good job of, uh, of balancing that cortisol reaction that's flooding our body during anxious times. Third A is accessibility. Uh, sugar is cheap and sugar is absolutely everywhere in our lives these days. You know, your cells go into the service station, get confronted by a wall of confectionery. You can't check out from most supermarkets and stores without being enticed by uh, soft drinks and chocolates, uh, usually heavily discounted, uh, preying on people's addictions, preying on our kids. Uh, fourth A is uh, addition, as I mentioned before, 75% uh, astronomical amount of sugar is added to our food and drinks. And then you add in the final A, which is advertising. So mm. the world is flooded with ads and TV commercials for sugary products. Um, and sometimes in the most insidious of ways, you know, you're sitting or standing at the petrol pump, filling your car with petrol, and there's a two-for-one deal for authorised coffee or chocolates on the on the nozzle. Uh, they're called Noz ads, actually. Uh, so, and of course, there's uh, predatory uh, advertising that goes on, aimed at our kids on TV, on social media. The list goes on. There's just so many uh, examples that, that one could uh, would, could give. So, you know, when the world is flooded with all of these sorts of things, it makes it a very difficult thing to kick. It must be hard for you, being so esteemed in your field, to see the uphill battle that confronts you with type 2 diabetes. In America, they say it's potentially going to send their economy broke. Um, and a large part of it is the bureaucracy that's preventing people from yourself making great change. So when you have a look at the food pyramid, which I studied when I went to university, 75% of the food pyramid recommends processed, highly processed foods, such as breads and pastas and rices and whatnot. And then you look at my friend who's a surgeon um, who removes limbs, telling me that uh, when he goes into the hospital to cut off uh, someone's leg with type 2 diabetes, that uh, they feed them orange juice and then cereal, cornflakes. Um what does that do to you like when you, you hear these sort of things and you know these things are happening? Do you sometimes get a little bit overwhelmed? Uh, so me as an eye surgeon, dealing, as, as I mentioned before, with the end-stage complication, the most feared complication, and uh, I've had the very unpleasant duty of having to remove eyes, to actually mm. remove eyes of patients who have gone blind as a result of their type 2 diabetes. And I have a number of orthopaedic colleagues who uh, have had to remove legs, as you say, amputation for gangrene due to type 2 diabetes. There's over 
over 4,000 amputations performed every year in Australia for wow. patients with type 2 diabetes. And I mentioned Neil Hansel had had nine over a 14-month period. So can you imagine as an orthopedic surgeon hearing the sound of a of an amputated leg hitting oh. the stainless steel bucket in the operating table behind, beside you. It's, uh, it's, it's just a devastating experience. And then when you realise it's actually preventable, goodness me, it, it does have an impact. You know, how can it not have an impact on you? Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, and then you think of all of the armies of health practitioners and health educators who are constantly battling uh, this disease in their practices. They're about uh, 1.2, 1.3 million people in Australia who have type 2, type 2 diabetes that we know and another half a mil who we actually don't know. So there are at least 1.2 million people uh, with type 2 diabetes in this country uh, who every day um, uh, doctors, uh, educators um, are, are battling with their disease and it's just astonishing the, the impact it has on, on, on people, not just the individual uh, their families, of course, and, and, the, and the medical practitioners who are trying to look after them. So it's a, it's a far-reaching disease and uh, it really is just does make me angry. It makes me upset uh, on one hand, but it actually uh, the, 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 we're seeing people going needlessly blind, but it actually makes me angry uh, when this disease shouldn't be happening at all. It was virtually non-existent in the 60s. We're now seeing in the order of 250 new cases of type 2 diabetes every single day. Yeah, it must be hard for you. And I don't expect you to criticise any anybody in the health space because they're just doing their best. When I went to university, you just taught a certain system that you believe in. And then when you start to, um, you know, see these things happen in real life where someone comes out of surgery after having a limb removed and then they're feeding them sugar. Uh, I mean, no one, <laughs> I don't know how we've got to that stage in our health system where the, the cause of this person going into hospital, then they're being fed more of that. And then the poor old dietitians obviously are doing their best as well. But it seems like a lot of our practices are outdated now, um, comparative to what we're starting to learn from a scientific point of view. And it's like we've backed ourselves into a corner where people don't want to acknowledge that maybe what they've been taught and what they've hung their hat on is outdated. Would you see some belief in that as well? Oh, yes, there's no doubt about it. And the way we eat, there's a long history to this, uh, but the way we eat really is informed by dietary guidelines. And we actually have the Australian dietary guidelines, uh, which actually very powerful. I, I, I was talking about this with a friend the other day and they, they said that they didn't even realise that we had dietary guidelines, but yes, we do. And they're actually very powerful. They inform what's eaten at schools. In hospitals, as you say, uh, they inform what's eaten in aged care and childcare facilities imprisoned in the defence forces. They also inform health practitioners and educators. Uh, they inform government policymakers and they also inform the food industry. On the back of the dietary guidelines, quite literally thousands of low-fat products have been created. So you're right, the dietary guidelines that we have now, which go back to 2013, uh, are actually outdated, um, but they're also flawed and they're full of bias and conflict uh, from industry influence. Uh, and there are a number of... Um, uh, there are a number of examples that one could give uh, to talk about the conflicts that exist within the dietary guidelines. But one of the most concerning and most obvious ones is the demonization of natural saturated fats in our diet, which has been going on for 40 years. Now, mm. the history there, and, and uh, it's, uh, it goes even 100 years back, but let's say uh, in, in the decades after World War II, there was uh, noted a rise in heart attacks and this was thought to be due to a fatty diet causing fatty blockage of our coronary arteries. So on no strong scientific evidence, 
when the American Dietary Guidelines in 1980 were released, it was recommended that we reduce our fat to something like 30% and increase our carbs to compensate to 60%. And rather than seeing a downturn in heart disease, heart disease soared and took along with it type 2 diabetes. And so uh, uh, this has been absolutely disastrous for our health, this demonization of natural saturated fats. So uh, products such as and processed red meat, uh, full fat dairy, eggs, all of those things for the last 40 years we've been told are bad for our health. There's no evidence. Mm. There's no evidence whatsoever to say that they're uh, associated with cardiovascular disease. And an American College of Cardiology in June this year released a very comprehensive high-level systematic review, a meta-analysis, which confirmed once again something that we've known for a long, long time. And yet the Dietary Guidelines, Australian Guide to Healthy Eating, our food pyramid, which are all based on the Dietary Guidelines, continue to discourage the eating of natural saturated fats, critical to our health. Fats and proteins are essential to our health, and yet they encourage plant-based foods. So something like two-thirds of our diet is, is plant-based uh, as you know, cereals and grains and, and vegetables and fruit. And so these are carbs for the most part. And, and when we look at the refined carbs in particular, these are nutrient poor, they're non-essential. There's not a single biochemical process in our body that demands that we ingest carbohydrates and in particular refined carbohydrates. So uh, we've got it all skewed. There needs to be a paradigm shift, um, you know, another, another uh, thing that I think many of us inherently know or think at least, is that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Mm. Who, who actually invented that, that term or that phrase? That was invented by John Harvey Kellogg <laughs> at the turn of last century to, to market his newly invented breakfast cereal cornflakes. There's no evidence to suggest that we must have breakfast every day. And yet, you know, there's, there's been this incredibly successful marketing campaign of the cereal industry that, that we must have uh, uh, cereals and grains for breakfast. And uh, once again, these are carbohydrates and quite often with significant processing and significant added sugar, which is again driving this uh, epidemic of obesity, type 2 diabetes, also dental caries, mm. tooth decay. Uh, sugar is the leading cause of tooth decay. Something like 40% of our 10 and 12-year-old kids have caries in their adult teeth. It's the leading cause of surgical admissions to hospital in children. It's the leading cause of days missed from school. Something like 50,000 days every year for kids having teeth extractions. The Health Hacker with Adam McDougall. I'm just so excited today to have you on this podcast because we need people of your esteem, Australian of the Year, actually trying to help people through this clogmire of so much misinformation, so much confusion, and really cutting through um, all the, the BS that's out there that's really being driven by people not wanting to fall on their sword and admit that what they were telling people is now wrong and, you know, not being, I suppose, beholden to food companies because, you know, you would see it all the time. But there's some little tricks that you scratch your head about with food companies, how they're tricking us to believe that something's healthy for us and it isn't with food labelling and whatnot. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, there's a, a very interesting study looking at sugar-sweetened beverages. They looked at the studies which were funded by industry, basically the, the sugary drinks industry, and ones that weren't funded by uh, the sugary drinks industry. The ones that weren't funded, 43 out of 44 studies showed a link between what I call sugar-loaded beverages, what they call sugar-sweetened beverages, sugar-loaded beverages, 
33 out of 34 showed a link between sugar-loaded beverages and type 2 diabetes and obesity. And the ones that were industry-funded, none out of 26 of the studies <laughs> showed a linkage. So you can see where, and, and, and what basically what happens is industry pollutes the literature with these funded studies so that they can say, well, the evidence is inconclusive. And this is what is constantly happening. That's just one example of, of what goes on. Yeah. yeah. My wife, actually, she uh, was lobbying to get how many teaspoons of sugar were actually in a product to be placed on the front of the pack. And she met with the government and uh, the person they ended up pushing her towards was the agriculture minister of all people. Um, and he was the one that was helping to decide what went on the front of the pack because the front of the pack and the back of the pack are actually governed by different laws. This is why I was asking this question because they can obviously use what we call weasel terms in in uh, in the marketing uh, strategies such as, you know, less added sugar or natural sugars or, um, you know, no added sugars and whatnot, and they hide behind these what we call weasel words or halo terms to pretend that a product's actually healthy when it's not. So... You know, something as simple as just putting how much sugar is on the front of a pack, wouldn't you think that would be a good start for the government to acknowledge um, and help people through this minefield of confusion? Uh, no doubt about it. Uh, you know, we were talking before about this being a systemic problem. So being a systemic problem, it's a far-reaching uh, and very broad strategy that's needed. We can't just say, you know, one thing alone will help. And certainly that is one thing that would help uh, in this whole process. But Let's go back to the five A's of sugar toxicity yeah. and, and look at some strategies then. So for me, uh, there's there's three overarching strategies, which actually an additional three A's, uh, awareness, accountability, and action. So awareness, uh, I suspect the vast majority, as I mentioned before, of Australians were, would be highly unaware that sugar is so addictive and that we use it to alleviate stress. So being personally aware, I think is very important mm. Uh, I'm sure they're unaware of the amount of sugar that's added to our food and drinks. So awareness is critical. Also awareness of the toxic nature of sugar. Uh, also awareness of type 2 diabetes and the horrendous life-changing, life-threatening consequences that can happen if you get this disease, uh, a preventable and also reversible disease. We'll, we'll come back to reversibility in a moment. So awareness is critical here. Accountability is, is critical as well. Accountability of businesses, government, and ultimately of government to do the right thing by the people of Australia. And then action, you know, we do need action by the government to make these things happen. So that, this thing goes to the, a, um, uh, the, the five A's and some solutions. I talked about just being aware of the addictive nature of sugar. And then once you're aware, then you can actually put in strategies to detox yourself. So earlier in this year, I went into a detox and I found out that I had a fatty liver and it's not pleasant. You know, detoxing sugar is not pleasant. You, you get the intense cravings, uh, which start immediately, um, but you also get other unpleasant symptoms, headache, fatigue, irritability, uh, to, uh, clouded thoughts. And, and what I found is it's much tougher than a coffee withdrawal and it, and it goes on for several days sometimes in people it can be a week or more it depends on how hard line you go for me i just gave up the heavily sugar products so, so the soft drinks and orange juice uh, fruit juices the uh, biscuits and cakes the chocolate confectionery ice cream that was my favorite thing uh, <laughs> the worst punishment i could receive as a child was to be sent to my bed after dinner without ice cream and i've <laughs> uh, always loved ice cream so you know those things uh and after three days for me, the craving started to, to disappear and I'm, I'm, I was essentially over that, that detox process. Uh, so that's one thing we can do, you know, just being personally aware and, and go through uh, 
the detox and then once you through the detox you can have uh, the odd treat if you want if you want to call it a treat um you know you can have the odd ice cream or the odd chocolate as i mentioned before uh, again uh, with the alleviation aid rather than reaching for a chocolate bar when you're down there's so much healthier things that you can do you know going for a walk somewhere beautiful out in nature uh, listening to your favorite music uh, reaching out to someone else who's having a tough time doing a good deed they've all been shown to be as effective as sugar in countering that cortisol reaction in the body during anxious times uh, third a is accessibility uh, a number of strategies that you can do here one would be to remove sugary products from vending machines. Um, there's vending, vending machines in our medical and dental school, in our children's hospital here in Adelaide, you know, extraordinary. Um, taking sugary products away from checkout counters where they're preying on our addictions and our, and our kids and the vulnerable. Uh, that's just a couple of examples. Um, fourth A, addition. This is where the front of pack label that you mentioned, Adam, comes in. You know, having a clear front of pack labeling system, how much sugar is added to this product and in teaspoons or cubes so people can really understand this. Uh, those nutritional labels I can barely understand, let alone read, and they certainly don't tell us how much added sugar is contained within. And uh, we, we actually have a health star rating system, which I mentioned before, and it's flawed. Yeah. It's flawed because it's voluntary and only about 30% of manufacturers actually use it at the moment. And it's also been, the algorithm for it has been created by the food industry really to favour uh, products that they're trying to sell. So, you know, again, once again, there's predatory behaviour going on. Uh, and there's also a levy on sugary products. One of the things that I mentioned as part of this strategy was uh, a levy on sugar. And uh, it was all the political journals in Canberra wanted to talk about in the week after receiving the award earlier in the year. Uh, but as I say, it's just one strategy, but there is a lot of, solid evidence and good reasoning behind it. Uh, in, there's a, a, a significant study, Australian study, that showed in the 10 years leading up to 2017, a 30% increase in sugary drink consumption in Australia. Uh, sugary drink consumption has been most definitely linked to type two diabetes in many studies from many countries. And a levy on sugary drinks in 17 different countries has been shown to reduce purchase and consumption. So it certainly makes sense to me you know, particularly a tax on or a levy on sugary drinks, which is so harmful to our health. And uh, it's been modelled that a 20% levy on sugary drinks would raise over $600 million, which could be then put into those health awareness strategies I mentioned before mm -hmm. and could be uh, used to um, balance up health inequalities that exist in our society, particularly in remote communities and Aboriginal communities. And uh, finally, advertising, you know, to remove ads, TV commercials for sugary products during those hours when our kids are watching, to remove ads for sugary products from government buildings and services such as buses and trams, you know, just, again, just a few of the strategies. So we do, we do need this uh, systemic approach. Uh, the dietary guidelines need to be reviewed. I was um, uh, pushing the NH and MRC and the Department of Health a lot to, to review, uh, to revise the dietary guidelines, and Greg Hunt has recently announced that that's going to happen, which is good. I had a meeting with Minister Hunt last week and I said that another really critical thing that we need to have on the table is, is reversibility of type 2 diabetes. Yeah. Can you go into that for us? What are some of the strategies people can Im implement to uh, hopefully reverse type 2 diabetes? Sure. So firstly, type 2 diabetes is largely preventable. Mm -hmm. uh, I say largely preventable because unfortunately, uh, some people are primed to develop type 2 diabetes uh, 
while they're in the uterus. So for example, uh, when you know, we've heard of gestate, gestational diabetes, so that's, this is a diabetes that can occur during pregnancy. So in pregnancy uh, with glucose and fructose, it, these are taken up, these are actually passed through the placenta to the fetus, but insulin doesn't. So you can actually metabolically prime the fetus, the infant to develop type two diabetes in, in life because of uh, excessive sugar consumption during pregnancy. So it's really important. Wow. And that's why it's so, so critical to measure blood sugar and, and to, uh, to um, uh, for general practitioners and obstetricians to monitor blood sugar during pregnancy and, and jump on gestational diabetes if it does develop. So that's, uh, that's very important information. Um, type two diabetes being preventable, yes, but is, is also reversible. And yet this is critical information that's not known by the majority of patients. And I also believe that many general practitioners and, and uh, health educators are not aware of the reversibility of type two diabetes, but there's now over a hundred controlled clinical trials that show that type two diabetes can be reversed. You can come back from it. Even patients who have had type two diabetes for 10 years or more. Yeah, it's really good news. This is something that should be shouted from the rooftops. But again, we have the vested interest because big pharma doesn't want people to know that because they make, make their money by prescribing uh, or, or by making available medications to reduce uh, exactly. reduce the sugar in the blood. Uh, but reducing sugar in the blood is, so the high blood sugar level is actually just a marker of the disease. It's actually the high insulin level, which is the big driver of the complications of type two diabetes. So basically many of those medications, all they do is take the sugar out of the blood and ram it back into the cell. So it's really just hiding the sugar rather than doing anything. And, and actually the medications for uh, type 2 diabetes, I understand, uh, uh, have no impact on heart disease, which is the big killer uh, of type 2 diabetes. So there are three proven methods for reversing type 2 diabetes, evidence-based methods. Mm -hmm. The first is a low-carb diet. And as I mentioned, there's over 100 studies now to show that a low-carb diet works. How many grams of carbohydrates? Sorry to interrupt. How many grams of carbohydrate do you classify as low carb? Less than hundred grams of uh, carbohydrates a day. Less than less than one hundred and thirty. Uh, yep. I think is is the, okay. the accepted amount. Uh, yeah. Keto is less than fifty or yep. thirty to fifty. So that's that's really hard line. But but low carb is less than uh, one hundred and thirty. So that's that's one strategy. There's another strategy which has been proven, and it was proven by the direct study in the United Kingdom, a very low cow diet. Uh, and this is not a sustainable, this is 800 calories per day. Mm. It's a hunger diet, it's a starvation diet. And it come, you know, if you want it, it's not sustainable essentially because it comes along with a lifelong need for willpower. Mm, right. to maintain an 800-cal-a-day diet, whereas a low-carb low diet doesn't come along with hunger. Uh, it is sustainable it, it, as long as it's nutritionally balanced. It, it is uh, nutritionally adequate, uh, and there are studies show that it works at least two years and beyond. So um, yeah, if I was to uh, have type 2 diabetes, this would be the approach that I would go for a low-carb low diet. And the third Evidence-based strategy is what we call bariatric surgery, which is basically uh, chopping out a bit of the stomach. And, and what that does is, um, is minimise the amount of 
food that we can actually take into the stomach. So it's actually a calorie restriction uh, modality, like like a very low cal diet. Uh, so, it's, but basically, surgery is expensive. It comes with significant risks. This is major abdominal surgery. Mm. Uh, you certainly this would be last line resort. You know, if the other two methods have failed, uh, but it also comes along with a lifetime need for supplementation because it's a nutrient deficient approach uh, and and. Uh, you know, just an awful situation to be faced with a lifetime of that when you can actually uh, have a, a low-carb diet which uh, doesn't depend on calorie counting and you can actually have an enjoyable uh, eating experience on, on a low-carb diet. Would you also agree that um, exercise would play a vital role too in increasing insulin sensitivity and glucose disposal? So exercise is really important. There's no doubt about it. Uh, uh, exercise particularly is good for mental health. I mentioned before that exercising uh, triggers the release of, of feel-good chemicals, dopamine, for example. So exercise is good for mental health. And, and, and when you're feeling down, rather than go for that chocolate bar or that, uh, that bottle of soft drink in the fridge, why not uh, just go for a, go for a, a walk outside something beautiful? So, so exercise is really, really uh, important. But... You can't exercise away a bad diet. In fact, type 2 diabetes is not linked. So type 2 diabetes is not caused by a lack of exercise. Yep. You can be fit and fat as such. That's, yeah, you can be. In fact, um, only about 1 in 200 people who are obese are actually metabolically unhealthy. But yes, you, you can actually. So exercise is, is important. But as I mentioned before, the critical thing here is insulin resistance in the liver due to the fatty liver. Mm. Uh, exercise can reduce insulin resistance in the skeletal muscles, but it can't. It doesn't do anything to reduce insulin resistance in the liver. Uh, so exercise is important, but you can't just continue. You can't exercise and continue to eat badly in the hope that you'll be protected. So uh, once again, you know, really important information. And uh, of course, the beverages and the sugary beverages industry have for a long time given the information that, uh, you know, that you should be exercising in order to, so that you can drink or consume more of their sugary beverages. So uh, that is, um, there's no, there's no uh, evidence behind that. I'm glad you said that because I often say to people, you can't outrun your fork or you can't outrun a bad diet. And diet's the most important thing when it comes to your waistline and your health, regardless of what anyone says. As a former athlete, I was very fit, but I was very unhealthy because of the amount of carbohydrates I was ingesting and the amount of processed foods. So I, I can attest to the amount of inflammation I had, the, the mood swings, the, the, the rises and dips in blood sugar and whatnot. But uh, what would an average day on the plate look like for you, doctor? I oh, actually just wanted to say on that note, yep. uh, so a poor, a poor diet is responsible globally for more disease and death than smoking, alcohol and inactivity combined. It's a really important wow. thing to be aware of. Great stat. <clears throat> so... I've recently, I actually, when I mentioned earlier in the year when I went into my sugar detox, I, I started doing a fast as well. So for me, exercise, fasting, minimizing sugar and refined carbohydrates are really a, an important element to this. And I went into a, a 16-8 fast earlier in the year. Mm -hmm. So basically, but basically all that meant was not eating anything after dinner through to lunchtime the next day. And all I used to do of a morning was, was have a bowl of cereal, some wheat peaks or cornflakes or something like that. 
And so all I did was just literally give up that bowl of cereal in the morning. And it's extraordinary, um, reducing the amount of, I didn't change the exercise, so my exercise was pretty stable. I exercised yep. a lot. As you can see, I'm, 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 not, uh, I'm not a big guy. I'm tall, but I'm not uh, very fit, yeah. Uh, well, reasonably now. Um, so, so, yeah, doing that fast and, and just minimising sugar and, and carbs, I'd, I'd, within a couple of months I lost over 10 kilograms. It was amazing. It just dropped right wow. off me. I, I wasn't actually trying. I was wanting to get rid of my belly, but I wasn't trying to, to, to lose weight. Uh, I wasn't actually aiming to lose weight, just, just, just trying to be healthier. So quite extraordinary. And uh, what happens when you fast is that, you have some metabolic changes. Um, you have a sudden drop in insulin. And as I mentioned, insulin is a big driver of, of type 2 diabetes. And actually, insulin is a driver of weight gain. So when you suddenly drop your insulin, this promotes weight loss. So this is really important. So uh, the other thing that happens when you go into a fast is that you have a burst of adrenaline and a burst of uh, growth hormone. And all of these metabolic changes actually drive weight loss. So the very things that we're doing to, to treat type, type 2 diabetes actually result in weight gain. So one of the treatments for diabetes is insulin. So giving <laughs> insulin to someone, it actually promotes weight gain in, in, the, in the patient. Um, High-carb diets, which are dietary guidelines, are essentially a high-carb diet. Even Diabetes Australia recommends that people with diabetes follow the dietary guidelines, Crazy. follow a high-carb diet. The very food uh, macro group that, that we sh that people with diabetes should not be eating. It's extraordinary. So, yeah, uh, fasting is, is, is important, and uh, yet I felt like I, I lost too much weight and, and actually came out of lockdown, and a number of people said to me, are you unwell? You know, <laughs> uh, because I'd lost so much weight. Um, so now, this is a long-winded answer to your question. That's great. Now what I'm doing, I, I've stopped recently, um, stopped my morning fast, and I'm just having... Uh, this morning, for example, I had a two-egg omelet for breakfast. So healthy, saturated fats in the form of eggs. Again, eggs have been demonised yeah. for 40 years. No Protein. evidence to say that eggs are bad for us. Uh, and uh, for for dinner recently, uh, I, I tend to have have meat, um, uh, have a meat meat-based dinner. I do love my salad and veggies, so you know, have meat and salad often tending to try and avoid the starchy vegetables yep. um, such as such as potatoes. I mean, I love a potato, I love mashed potato, uh, I love a roast potato and chips, etc. Again, just being uh, being cautious of how much of that I have, but I tend to enjoy the, the non-starchy vegetables, uh, uh, broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, things like that for dinner. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because the natural saturated fats have a satiety element to them. You know, people talk about uh, snacking. And if you have a bowl of cereal for breakfast, that's gone pretty quickly. Um, it's just, it just gives you a big sugar hit because it's broken down into, into glucose as soon as it hits the gut. And then, then you, you're hungry. So by mid-morning, you're, you're looking for something to eat. Whereas if you have, for example, an omelette or bacon and eggs for breakfast, it'll take you through to lunchtime. I, I had my two-egg omelette at 7 o'clock this morning. What are we now? Uh, it's now midday, and I'm not even feeling hungry yet, so I'll be looking forward to having some, some cheese for lunch, perhaps with a, with a couple of crackers. And uh, So that's my, my day, yeah. Yeah, and you're becoming fat-adapted in, in a better sense of the word as well, aren't you? More metabolically flexible because mm. you can utilise fat then as the main driver of energy rather than relying on these sugar breakfast cereals and, and breads and whatnot. Mm, exactly. Uh, just to finish with, Doctor, you've given us so much 
insightful uh, detail today. If you could just uh, pass on some advice to people on health lifestyle choices uh, to help reverse type 2 diabetes or prevent themselves from developing diabetes, what would that be? I think the three key things, just exercise for mental health because when you are down in the dumps, you often turn to things like sugar, excessive alcohol consumption, even cigarettes and hard drugs. So I think uh, exercise for mental health, uh, just watch minimise the amount of sugar and refined carbohydrates and highly processed foods you're eating. And if you are wanting to, if you actually have type 2 diabetes, if you're on medications particularly and you're wanting to look at a reversal, you need to do it in conjunction with your general practitioner, your endocrinologist, uh, even the dietitian, uh, a low-carb dietitian, to, to monitor that process because you can run into strife if you try and do it yourself. So uh, a fasting element, I think, is very important as part of this. Um, but there are also, as I mentioned, three uh, methods for reversing type 2 diabetes that people need to be aware of and, and have the opportunity to discuss that with their treating doctor. Well, I think you've just re-emphasized today to our audience that once again, that if it says it's low fat on the front of the label, don't trust it. <laughs> and orange juice isn't good for you as yeah, yeah, well, there's <laughs> all of these sugar, sugary beverages. I mean, the obvious ones are the soft drinks, but yeah. then you have the energy drinks, the iced teas, the, the, <laughs> the flavoured milks, uh, you name it. They're all just loaded with sugar. Many of them are loaded with sugar and often low-fat dairy and, and low-fat products because the fat's been stripped out of them, the flavour's been stripped out of them, the satiety, the satiety factor has been stripped out of them, so it's replaced with sugar and carbs to, to take the flavour back into it. And, and you just beware, as you say, and also beware of... All of those many, many, many different names that there, is, that there are for sugar. If it ends in O-S-E, O's, then there's every <laughs> chance that or it is a sugar. So um, just be aware it doesn't just have to say sucrose, glucose or fructose. There's so many other different uh, names for sugar that one needs to be aware of. Thank you so much for today. And congratulations on everything you're doing, mate. You're making a huge difference. As I said, it's the... It's going to be the biggest killer in, in our society, diabetes and type 2 diabetes in particular. It's reversible, so fantastic work. Well done. Thanks, guys. Well, that's the episode, and we hope you learnt heaps. We know we did. So if you want us to hack into someone in particular for you, let us know. Leave us a comment on the app wherever you're listening to this podcast. Email us directly, healthhackeratthemanshape.com.au, or jump onto Adam's socials or on his website, themanshape.com.au. And we'll do our best to get that person on the podcast. Health Hacker was created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Written and presented by Adam McDougall. Produced and presented by Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. To listen to more episodes, search Health Hacker Podcast. Listen for free at podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the Podcast One Australia app.